I'm WUWM's Eric Von Fellow Kobe Brown, and thank you for joining me for the next installment of We Gaze. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the unique relationship LGBTQ folks have with homelessness. We'll also discuss the efforts to address this issue in Milwaukee. To understand this issue more, I chatted with Bianca Wilson, a senior scholar at the Williams Institute, which is an LGBTQ public policy and law research center at UCLA. Wilson starts by explaining why LGBTQ people are more likely to be living in poverty and who in the community is most affected. I mean, the main thing is that we, we've known now for some time that um, you know, the myth of the the idea that all LGBT people um, are like the white, rich, gay, cis man um, is exactly that. It is a myth. That's not, I mean, of course, there are parts of every population that are economically stable or have high income, but that doesn't characterize like the full LGBTQ plus um, communities in the U.S., and so we've known for some time that not only does it not characterize everybody, but that LGBTQ people are more likely to be living in poverty than non-LGBTQ people. And um, and that's like particularly felt among cis women overall, particularly cis bisexual women, as well as trans folks, and then racial minorities across the gender identities among LGBTQ people. So, um, yeah, so we know that LGBT people tend to be living in poverty more so than non-LGBT folks. I'm curious, you mentioned that, you know, the LGBT community is really diverse and along the lines of poverty and homelessness in the community, uh, I believe you said cis bisexual women, transgender women, and I'm sure the lines of disparity only deepen when we add in race. I can only guess, but why are those groups the most affected? Yeah, that is that is a great question. Um, I'd say that is something we need to understand more about. So first, under, we know that the disparities are there. Understanding the why and how is where future research needs to go. It's where policy advocacy needs to be more focused on, is really understanding those root causes so that we're designing policies and services that really get at the the reasons that those disparities exist. So we may not really have all the answers, but we do have some indicators. So for example, a um, pretty big qualitative study that my colleagues and I completed in California, where we um, interviewed about 100 LGBT low-income people in two counties in California. And we asked them about their experiences growing up and really where their economic issues, like financial issues started for them. And for a lot of people, um, and we tend not to talk about this when we talk about LGBTQ communities, for a lot of people, it started as children. Like they grew up in poor families. So just like many people in the US who are poor as adults, regardless of sexuality and gender, um, a lot of them also grew up poor. And this was the case for LGBT people too. And I think that's an important factor for us to keep in mind that LGBT folks are not immune to the cycle of intergenerational poverty. And that um, we know that that is a factor for LGBT people as well. So that's one of those factors that are similar across sexual orientation, gender identity, right? Uh, other factors that 
are that we also hear among non-LGBT people are issues of substance use and mental health issues. Now, what's interesting about those as as factors or as like the beginnings of economic insecurity is that while we do know that substance use and mental health are also important factors for people regardless of LGBT identity, we also know that LGBT people experience those issues at higher rates and likely as a function of minority stress and experience discrimination. So while mental health is, you know, we know that, for example, among those who are experiencing homelessness, um, as well as poverty in general, mental health issues and mental health um, kind of concerns are a, a major factor, a major problem across all groups. We know that LGBT people are more likely to experience that as an issue. And then there are some other very LGBT specific factors that came up in our study, um, like discrimination and employment. Um, a lot of trans folks talked about, and trans and non-binary people talked about experiencing that uh, really uncomfortable interview where the potential employer saw who they were and seemed to have judgment about their gender expression, um, you know, or them asking them to use different pronouns than what that potential employer expected them to want to use. And, you know, so that's obviously a very LGBT specific kind of factor that impacts economics. I see, I see. And now your most recent report on LGBT poverty, which I believe was released earlier this year, suggests mm -hmm. that poverty trends for the LGBT community have slightly declined since the pandemic. What has caused this decrease in poverty, do you think? And what has been the impact of the pandemic on poverty experienced by LGBT individuals? Yeah, great question. So COVID and trying to understand its impact on poverty is tricky. Um, in that clearly the loss of um, employment that came with the mass layoffs and other challenges to working as the COVID-19 pandemic uh, began increased a lot of economic stability for all folks in the U.S. as well as globally in many ways. However, um, we've seen in other research that the, that it is likely that the beginning of a series of emergency, COVID-19 emergency related benefits and moratoriums on evictions helped to stabilize some of that economic um, upset for many Americans. And so it's not just LGBT people that we saw have a decrease in poverty around 2021, 2022, but really it was all people in the US. Um, like those who were already low income uh, became a little bit more stabilized and and we saw that people weren't dropping down into the poverty uh, kind of category as much. Now, so our guess would be that what happened for LGBT people is what happened for other folks in the U.S. that were getting those benefits and then that helped the actual poverty rate. We don't know for sure, though, because a problem here is that we don't have data collection that includes sexual orientation and gender identity in some of those core surveys that can both track benefits receipt and track income and poverty rates among LGBT people. So um, it's our guess that it's a similar factor at play. 
uh, but we, we don't know for sure. Now, what we have yet to know is now that all those benefits are ending, now that the moratoriums on eviction are ending, the student loan, now that student loans are about to start back up, we don't know how that will impact poverty rates for the U.S. in general and LGBT people specifically. So that's, you know, we'll see what happens next year. That was Bianca Wilson, a senior scholar at the Williams Institute, who just shared her findings on LGBTQ plus homelessness and poverty. In Milwaukee, Courage MKE, a nonprofit organization, is expanding its efforts to assist LGBTQ plus individuals secure housing. The organization purchased an apartment building specifically designed for LGBTQ plus young adults who are homeless and aging out of the social welfare system. I talked with Brad Schleikowski, the executive director of Courage MKE, and Constance Crockett, who's a residence care worker there. Next up, they both share their experience with this new development. In 2019, we opened Wisconsin's first home for displaced LGBT youth. Uh, we've been operating with four years, for four years, and um, we get kids from across all, all over Wisconsin, five hours away. Most 50% of our kids come from Milwaukee County. The rest come from other counties and tribes around the state. And we, when they move in, uh, 12 to 17 year olds move in. And when they move in, uh, we don't have a, there's no time limit, right? If they come when they're 12 and everything is working out for them, they can stay till they age out, right? Uh, but the purpose is to help them learn how to work through the traumas that they've been through in their life and how to cope with that so that when they're living on their own, they can, they can, they have the skills and resources to do that. Um, most of the, all these kids that come from the social welfare system, there's so much trauma involved and we don't talk about it enough, right? Um, so there's that stigma about it, but we try to normalize it by making it just our everyday conversation at the house. And I would love to say it's sunshine and daisies every day, but you know, when, when there's trauma, there's big emotions. And when you're 12 to 17, you don't know how to process those. So we have our amazing staff like Constance to help us with that. Yeah, no, Constance, I'm curious. You could be anywhere. I'm sure the mission really touched you and really drew you to it. What are some other factors that really drew you to working here? Personally, as an um, activist um, for queer folks and POC black people, I mean, it, uh, directly in line with my passion and what I love to do. I um, also worked with kids before um, who, you know, a lot of kids with autism and with trauma too. So it just directly um, co correlated with like what I feel is my passion and my purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brad, this question is back to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the housing resources and services provided by Courage MKE for displaced and homeless LGBTQ youth? Well, we have the group home, right? But those kids have to come with a referral from an agency because they're in the, in the system. Um, but in January of this year, we just bought the new building, which will become an apartment building for LGBTQ plus young adults that are aging out or are homeless. So in that, this building, we'll be able to house seven kids, seven young adults, but we will have staff here 24 seven, one staff member. The difference between the staff at the apartments and the staff in the group home, the group home staff are more like parental figures. And here it's a safety net, right? So 
when we see children age out of the social welfare system, they, if they're lucky enough to get into an independent living program, that's amazing, right? They have their own apartment. However, they're given an apartment and they're given an apartment and that's it with no resources or support. So if we have a staff member on site in the apartment building 24 seven, if the child is having a crisis in the middle of the night, they can turn to a staff member versus their bag of prescribed meds because they don't know how to process what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. You, know, you mentioned the difficulty that goes into keeping out, uh, looking out for LGBTQ youth who are experiencing homelessness, you know, that comes with a lot of trauma. What are some other resources that Courage MKE provides for those people? So for, for, the, for the younger, for the 12 to 17 year olds, we're providing, we're teaching them life skills, right? But we're not telling them we're teaching them. We're not saying we're learning this today. You know, it's come cook with me or what chores, here's your chores. Those kids have to do chores at that house. Um, but that's teaching them skills that they've never had to do before. Um, as well as, you know, some of them have to ride the bus. Some of us, we've had staff members drive around the city on the bus with these kids. But those kids that were teaching the basic life skills. At the apartment building, um, we'll be able to provide not only the, 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 the four walls, right, but we're, we're hiring our own team of case managers um, that uh, the young adults will have to meet with once a week. If they don't have a high school diploma when they move in here, that's the first thing we're going to work on because that's the one piece of paper that we can't say, oh, well, you don't need it, right? So we're going to work on that. But then once they, if they are working or once they start working, um, one of the things that they'll have to do is give us a percentage of their paycheck, but that doesn't come to Courage. That goes into a separate account so that they, when they meet with their caseworker, they start to learn how to budget their finances. And then when they move out of here to take that leap to live on their own, that money comes back to them as their nest egg of security deposit, first month's rent, or you know, make sure they have that food security money um, for when they move out. But other, otherwise, when they're, when they're living here, um, we'll, we'll still provide them with the same resources that we provide them at, that other, at the other place. You know, we have therapists that are willing to help these kids once we're open with, this, with the new building um, for free of charge. You know, we have dent, a dentist, a Riverside Family Dental, that is offering any child that lives in a Courage building free dental care. State insurance for dental is, if the tooth is bad, pull it, right? And that's not health, that's not healthy. Um, so, you know, when you, you take the, the phrase, it takes a village, this is truly that. Like, these two houses are the epitome of the house that love built. And I don't mean to be a cliche, but the amount of people across the metro Milwaukee area are the ones that make these exist. 53% of our annual revenue comes from individual donors. And, you know, we can march in the streets, we can take to social media, but unless we all take a, find a way to take action, and if some people, their way of taking action is using their financial resources, that, that's just as amazing because these kids now see that maybe their family rejected them, but their family just grew exponentially from all the love that comes through these walls. I bet a lot of love comes from Constance, who is on the ground working with these uh, LGBTQ youth and now young adults that you have coming in. What has it been like for you to be in the mix of everything and of one of the first LGBTQ shelter homes in Wisconsin and Milwaukee? Um, it's an absolute privilege. Um, when I stepped into the space, um, I was just in awe of the actual, like, 
um, genuineness of everyone and the community that was already there and established. The kids had trust. They were able to be themselves, whether that's positive or something else. Like they were able to feel safe enough there to, to be themselves. So that's something that I saw that like really warmed my heart and made me like this is the right place to be. Um, just, yeah, I mean, it was just awesome just being there. It's, it's very... It's not perfect. I'm not saying that it's like a home. It's, a, it's like a family, and families go through things and things like that, but there are also, like, so many beautiful moments that you see. You see, like, the short time I was there, I seen one of the kids being able to just transform themselves and be able to learn new coping skills within a week, and I was able to see that in real time. So it's just things like that that really just, you know, blows me away. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and this question is for you and Brad. This is the first LGBTQ shelter. Why do you think there was such a blind spot to LGBTQ homelessness um, to begin with? Um, I just feel like it's systematic. Um, it's, it's already been established that we don't have many spaces, period, for queer folks in Milwaukee. Um, queer people in Milwaukee are pretty much pushed aside, left alone, and forgotten about. So you add that to also having trauma, being homeless, well, they're also going to be pushed in the back of that, too. So um, being the last thought. Um, so it's, I feel like it is systematic, um, but like I see what Courage is doing, and I feel like it's a, a nice stepping stone, a nice example for what Milwaukee should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, adding to that, Brad, or you've mentioned that you and your partner got into this. You could have gotten into a lot of other um, challenges that face the community. What was it about this topic that really lit a fire in you? I came out at a, at a late age, right? I came out at the age of 32. I was married, had a different relationship before, and I was teaching my children to love themselves, but here I was not doing the same. So I, I came out late. Um, and then later on, I met, met my now husband, right? And we, were, uh, we wanted a child of our own together, and so we started fostering um, a little girl. And then the state um, asked us if we could start taking some teenage girls to share a room with her. And anytime they got a teenage girl that identified as queer in any way, they called us. And what inspired courage is these girls' stories. They were all um, rejected from shelters because they looked too masculine, right? Or bullied or torment or, or anything like that. And all of them had the same story. Um, the last teenage that, that lived in our house, she literally came to us with patches of hair missing from her head, holding bandages to keep the blood in because the girls pulled her hair out at her group home because she was bisexual. And that's what lit the fire. That's what, that's what really motivated it, right? And then when we started talking to people, you know, any bar or any event that would give me a microphone and let me tell them what's happening to these kids, that's when the floodgates opened, we thought we were gonna be waiting five to 10 years to buy our first building, because we, I was in corporate America, my husband's in corporate America, we were not nonprofit folks, but uh, the community wrapped their arms around us so tightly and opened their hearts that back then we didn't have corporate donors, we didn't have big donors, we had the community, average Joes like us, right? And they, so they could give five, 10, 20, 50, maybe a hundred dollars. And I tell you that not to talk about money, but to show that in two years we paid cash for that building 
from that many people being able to donate such small increments. So that just shows you how many and how big the important this is. Why it's never been done before, I don't know. I think that there's been, we have partner agencies in the city that have done a really good job of making sure that LGBT kids understand that they have a safe place there, like Pathfinders, right? Um, but going back to the girls that are living in our house, giving them a place to be their authentic self and not have to worry about the staff which is a, th a sad thing to think about, right? But staff are no were some of the number one bullies to our kids in some other facilities. Um, for these kids to be their authentic self and remove that wall, because when you're trying to chip away at the trauma and they have this wall of, I can't be myself, you're never gonna get to the trauma because we have another barrier. It's another barrier. So when we can remove that, it just makes getting to working through those coping skills easier. You just heard from Brad Schleikowski and Constance Crockett of Courage MKE. Brad Schleikowski is the executive director of Courage MKE, and Constance Crockett is a resident care worker there. At the top of the show, I chatted with Bianca Wilson, a senior scholar at the Williams Institute, an LGBTQ public policy and law research center at UCLA. They spoke with me, WUWM's Eric Vaughn fellow Kobe Brown. Thanks for listening, and tune in next month for We Gay's final installment. Until next time. <laughs>